Hello and welcome to the Free Music Ed podcast. My name is Stephen. My name is Gannon. And today we are talking about how technological innovation has been constantly changing the musician and the role of the musician over the last about 150 years. And uh, so we've we've got some list for you. This is gonna be uh, this is gonna be pretty interesting, I think. What do you think, Gannon? It's gonna be uh, very educational. It's going, strangely educational. It's going to be epic. Epic. All right. So here's what I'm going to do. I want to take you back in time, a a long time ago, to about 1857. This is about the earliest that we've had any ability to record sound. Before then, history is silent. All we have is text. All we have are artifacts. Any music before that time, we don't have recorded samples of unless we've reproduced it in modern times. Anything before 1857, the world was silent. It's kind of weird to think about. Right? It's like how back before the 1930s, the world was in black and white. Okay, so as I'm as I'm talking about that, that was the first time we're able to record it sound. There's been so much innovation between then and now that it's pretty remarkable. So when the the recordings we've been able to play back from whenever they were first able to record sound do not sound that gorgeous. So if you're interested, there's a website you can go to called firstsounds.org. That's F-I-R-S-T sounds, S-O-U-N-D-S dot org. And under a Creative Commons license, they've released some of the earliest playings of wax cylinder recordings. So the original recording devices recorded onto wax. As you can imagine, not a lot of them survive now because wax is pretty easy to mess up. So uh, let me let me play back a recording. This is one of the earliest recordings that is, I mean, that we've ever reproduced at all. So this is a playback of a recording from 1860. So that's what, like 152 years ago? 152 53, yeah. yeah. 153 years ago, this recording was made. This is a recording of Claire de Lune. I warn you, if you are scared of ghosts, do not listen to this, because it's pretty much terrifying sounding. Uh, it's, it's not going to be pretty. So here, let me play this for you right now. This is Claire de Lune. You can find this recording on firstsounds.org and listen to it. That, that was uh, that was gorgeous, wasn't it? That's pretty much <laughs> what it sounds like whenever I sing nowadays. Yes, it's very beautiful. Very beautiful. So around 1860, sound is so incredibly experimental that it has absolutely no effect on music and musicians anywhere. Pretty much. Yeah, there's not a whole lot that you can do with that. And there's not going to be a whole lot of people who would want to sit around and listen to it. And it's it's pretty much going to remain useless and not really influential for the next 30 or 40 years. Oh, really? It was that's, that long? Well, it, that's, I mean, so that's when we're first able to start recording it. By the time we get it all ironed out well enough, well, here, maybe not so long. Uh, in 1878, Thomas Edison invents the phonograph. And so we're looking at, you know, 20 years later, we're now actually having a device that people could use. But now it's invented, how long does it take to really catch on and really travel around America? And I think you're really looking at the 1900s before people are starting to get these into their homes. Yeah, yeah, we didn't have communication the way that we do now. 
mass communication. They'd have to physically travel this thing across the United States showing people how it works. Right, for people to even understand why this would be valuable. And it's going to wind up in the hands of the elite. And this is an interesting thought, that the elite were the people that already had access to music, especially classical music. To, to travel and hear a symphony, you're not going to do that if you're the average person in the late 1800s. Yeah, yeah, that's very true. You know, that's something that's always been controversial just in the realm of music history in general, you know, is that music in a lot of time periods was really just meant for the elite. And you have people whose entire body of work was made entirely for kings and courts and stuff like that. And, you know, so some public performances and stuff, but the purpose of it, you know, was totally different. It wasn't until we got into the opera time. You know, you started getting opera buffa. And... Well, of course, that's the music that we study. But at the same time, there's always been pop music. There's always been music of the people. Mm-hmm. Troubadours. Right. This, this type of thing has always happened. <clears throat> so there's still plenty of music being made. But at this point, that's not the music that's being recorded anyway. That's the stuff that's being handed down verbally versus having the sheet music for it. That's very true. So here's the issue, though. Recorded sound is such a huge, epic change for the way that music had been for all of human history because all of a sudden we can have music without having a musician there we can have someone take this phonograph and play it who has absolutely no musical skill whatsoever they can turn a crank and you now have this live music here at your house and by live i mean it's music it's happening but there's no live musician yeah and that's a big deal you know a lot of rich people would actually just hire musicians just to come into their house and play, you know, back in the day. And there's still people who do that, but not very often anymore. Well, back then it was your only choice. If you yeah. were going to have a wedding, you couldn't hire a DJ to come and play a bunch of music for you. You had to hire actual living, breathing, working for a living musicians to come and play at your home. A very poor living. Well, it's still, it was people, people made money. Uh, and you're right, this still happens today. People still understand the value of having live musicians there. But for the first time in history, there was another option. Yeah, that's huge. Early 1900s. So uh, you would have to adapt. At the same time, though, all of a sudden there's a new job that's been created. Because now there's the recording artist. Mm-hmm. So people had to record mm-hmm. these. And I have no idea how rights worked out. If it's anything like sheet music, uh, the musicians probably got hardly anything. Now, the great thing is, for those live musicians is that people could tell a huge difference between playing a phonograph and having live musicians. The audio quality just wasn't there. And it's not going to be there until we really get into the 1970s and 80s that you can reproduce it and it sounds really good. Mm-hmm. I mean, even up through the 30s and 40s and 50s and 60s, the recording quality was not near as nice as having live musicians. Oh yeah, absolutely. You don't know a funny story about Dizzy, uh, Dizzy Gillespie. Slap me. Louis Armstrong. Okay. Sorry, go on. Thanks. Um, you know, when Louis Armstrong, especially early in his career, when he's Wait, recording... Wait, I have to touch this real quick. Okay. There's a lot of people that are really upset about using the term Louis Armstrong. Oh, that he, he was Louis Armstrong. And in one of the other podcasts, we said Louis Armstrong, and it's been on my conscience ever since. <laughs> okay, if you prefer Louis. Right. Louis Armstrong, when he was recording, um, you know, microphone technology was a very brand new thing. And the diaphragm of the microphone couldn't handle a lot of um, a whole lot of sound hitting it at once, especially when you're talking about uh, compression and pressure coming towards that microphone. And so 
Um, you know, you watch those old cartoons and all the cartoons are dancing around and all the dishes are out dancing and stuff. The reason that you see that is that the drummer couldn't use actual drums. They would have to play on teacups and on pots and pans and just kind of tap them lightly because anything more percussive than that would actually destroy the microphone. And so when Louis Armstrong was recording, a lot of those recordings, he's down the hall, literally down the hall from the rest of the band because his sound was so powerful that he destroyed recording equipment if he was in the same room with it. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah, well, that, so a lot that, of early Louis recordings, you're hearing him from, you know, 30 feet away. <laughs> that, that's amazing because then all the machines you're recording onto wax and then later you're recording onto vinyl and then later you're recording onto cassette tape. Yeah, and those those big tapes, the big films and tapes. Reel to reel. Until now, what I've got to record this podcast is this little bitty field recorder that fits in my pocket. I'm sure I can get one the size of a cell phone now, or just use my cell phone if I really wanted to. And you can get really nice audio quality, far, far better than what the most expensive rigs would have done even 20 years ago. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it, that's definitely progressed a long way. It's changed. So up until the 70s, man, it's easy to compete as a musician because you just sound so much better than recorded music anyway. Uh, we're at the point now where recorded music played back sounds pretty much exactly the same as having live musicians there. When it's, you're talking sound quality, yeah. Yeah, when you're talking just sound quality. I, I know that as far as atmosphere, it's completely different to be able to see and experience musicians actually producing music there. There's also a thrill to having live musicians who could make a mistake at any moment <laughs> or might play something that's actually never been played before. Well, the, the ambiance of the room and the energy that's coming off the stage and Certainly. things like that. You know, like um, uh, one of my favorite players of all time, Ed Kaye, who's a, a tenor sax player. The guy's great on recordings, and everybody's heard him play uh, one way or another because he's just on so many recordings. Man, when you hear that guy live, um, it's an irreplaceable experience. I mean, he lights a room on fire every time he touches a horn. It's amazing. That's amazing. There was another invention I wanted to talk about. So recorded sound is obviously the big one. That being said, there was another invention around the same time, around the, uh, the 1870s and 1890s, uh, up into that area there, uh, 1870s, the first time we have what's called an automatic reed organ. And this is the beginning of the player piano. So for those of you who haven't experienced a player piano, it looks like a piano, but somewhere on the piano you can take a roll of paper that has a bunch of holes punched in it. You put the roll of paper on there, and then using pumps at the bottom of the piano, you uh, run your feet, and it runs that piece of paper through the piano. And using those holes, it communicates with the mechanisms in the piano to actually play recorded sound. Uh, and a lot of people are familiar with this, but I know some people that have never seen one in person. Well, you know, it's been so long since uh, they've been very popular that I know kids these days, they've probably never even heard of such a thing. It's pretty ridiculous. And you can still buy a player piano today, but it's all electronic. Oh, yeah, yeah. And there's there's a lot of those, and they're pretty interesting. You, you pop can, your MP3 in there. And <laughs> mm -hmm. you, you, you can take the ones that I've seen. I forget the company. I'll probably put it in the description somewhere. You can get a player piano now where you take your phone out, and you select the song you want as you're coming into your house. And you click the button on your phone, and it communicates with your Wi-Fi, and that communicates with your piano, and your piano starts playing this music live on the actual piano, on the strings, the keys to press and move. And it's like having a piano player at your home. Wow. It's, uh, it's pretty cool. They're really expensive. 
And most regular pianos can actually be outfitted with this technology. So if you already have a piano and you want to spend five or $10,000 to install player piano mechanisms, they can actually do it to almost any piano now. Wow, that's pretty neat. I think it's called Piano Motion or Pianimation or Pianomatic or something that they call this <laughs> some, one. Some bad pun. Some terrible combination of piano and <laughs> mechanisms. Anyway, uh, but during the 1870s, they had these automatic reed organs. By the 1890s, the first player piano, it's called the Aerial Piano, probably mispronouncing that, A-E-R-I-O-L, Aerial Piano, is marketed by Theodore P. Brown. And from this point to about 1920, uh, the 1920s, the player piano grows in popularity. And people get these in their homes. You have to think about the late 1800s and the early 1900s. The piano is the most popular instrument on earth. That's one instrument that that's, you, you can do anything that you want in your home with just that one instrument. It right. fills out the entire spectrum um, to accompany you. It's not a single note instrument. And guitar really hadn't caught on yet. Uh, player pianos are really neat for the following reasons. Number one, they did the same thing as recorded music. They could offer you the experience of having music without being a trained musician, but they were special in that it sounded as good as your piano sounded. If you had someone walk in and play piano, well, you it sounded almost identical to having a player piano role playing because it was the piano actually being played. People would record the roles for playing piano by actually playing them. So Scott Joplin recorded a lot of player piano roles in the early 1900s. And you can actually listen to those now, and they sound great. Actual recordings of Scott Joplin that were recorded on to, to wax or vinyl or those type of things, they sound terrible. But if you play back a player piano role, it's as good as if you were playing in your living room right now. In fact, I've got an example. Mm -hmm. Scott Joplin playing Weeping Willows recorded on a piano roll in 1903. So if you want to listen to more of that, you can go to ragsrag.com. And uh, that link's on this website. These are in public domain. They re were recorded before 1923, written before 1923, and they're just being played back either through actual player pianos or they can now run these through machines and create a MIDI file, which we'll talk about later, that can be played back on pretty much any computer. Depending on how good your stuff is, it can sound nearly as good as a real piano. Yeah, and you know what's so cool about the way that they did that technology was the roll of paper is actually able to pick up on nuances like uh, the dynamics and, and the player's touch on the keys, and, the, and it, it picks up on exactly how that person is pushing down the keys, you know. So you really do get the experience of, hey, here's Scott Joplin playing this piano, exactly how he would have played it, even with little imperfections that they don't quite hit these two notes at the same time and stuff. Well, and that's what you can do. You can do that with a good MIDI keyboard now. And most actually, this is getting into something we're going to do later, but most people who record uh, computer music will take and they'll record, instead of putting in notes like in a music notation software, they'll record it all on a keyboard or through some type of other interface so that you have the natural 
inconsistencies that come with actual humans playing instruments, mm-hmm. which is almost prettier, if not absolutely prettier, than perfection. Oh, yeah. That was pretty important. Now, after the 1920s, the player piano kind of died out and just lost popularity gradually until it's a niche market now. Some people do it, and it's pretty cool. I'd love to have one, so if you want to give me one, you may do that. <laughs> um, Scott Joplin, by the way, a Texan. And, oh, yes. Uh, one of the most famous African-American composers of all time. Mm-hmm. And uh, the reason I know that he's a Texan is because I've seen statues of him in Texas. Oh. Yeah, as listed as a famous Texan. So if I find out I'm wrong, I'll just edit this part out. Okay. Nobody ever <laughs> yeah, know, probably a good call. I wouldn't leave that in if it's wrong. Yeah, I don't know. Pretty cool stuff, I think. Uh, here's another thought, and that is the invention of radio and radio waves. The first time that radio waves really become practical, and it's kind of the culmination of research from a lot of different people, including like Nikola Te- Nikolai Tesca, Tes- Tesla. Tesla. Pardon me. Come on, you gotta say Tesla's Tesla. Name, right? We're Pardon nerds. Me. We gotta know about That's Tesla. That's true. Yeah, well, sorry, Nikolai Tesla, <laughs> and uh, ultimately culminating in 1895 when Marconi develops a long-distance radio wave transmission device. So we're looking at the first time that it becomes practical to transmit radio waves long distance at 1895. And we're a long way from having radio and having radio programs for people to listen to. But by a long way, I mean 15, 20, 30 years before those things are becoming really popular. So by the late 20s and 30s, we have radio programs and people are starting to put radios inside of their homes. And that changes everything once again. Because mm-hmm. all of a sudden, you don't have to go to the store and start buying music. You can get it for free yeah. over your radio just by tuning in. Yeah, and it, it, it not only changed the way that people listen to music, but it changed how people performed music and how they wrote music. You know, a lot of early jazz composers, their their compositions, like, for example, One O'Clock Jump by the uh, Basie Band, was written specifically to be on the radio. And so a lot of those tunes, I know Duke Ellington was into this too, um, or a very specific amount of time, and it's somewhere right around three minutes. Well, and not that's that's not only for consuming music on the radio, but also for producing vinyl records. Is your time was limited mm-hmm. to only a certain amount of time on either side, and depending on what year you're talking about and what type of technology, how fast the record is spinning, how small the grooves were, you you're limited between a couple of minutes to maybe as much as five or ten minutes. But you're not going to put a symphony on one side of a record. You're going to need an entire record collection. All of a sudden, we've got radio. And I think it's interesting that this really did change the way that people listen to music. Because once you had a device, all you had to do was tune in, and it was right there. Mm -hmm. And the laws from the early and middle and late days of radio are still messing with us in copy protection now. Because one of the big problems in copyright arguments are, does the person have control over what they're listening to or not? So if you're able to choose to play a certain song at any time, and if you can rewind and fast forward, and well, that's one type of right. The Another right would be if you don't have control. So like on a radio, you have no control over what's playing. You tune into a station, and then you just leave it there, and someone else chooses everything that's playing. Kind of like in modern day, what we deal with with Pandora and Spotify radio. You know, those two things work very differently from each other. Right. Spotify, you can choose to play whatever music you want. And Pandora, it chooses for you. And both of those are ad-supported, which is what happens. To provide a free service and to pay everybody still, it's not really free. Somebody somewhere is paying for it. Tim Stoffel. 
What's that? You know what a Tistoffel is? No. It's the first rule of economics. Oh, there is no you. such thing as a free lunch. Right. Sorry. No, I knew <laughs> that. I didn't recognize your pronunciation of that particular acronym. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, there's no such thing as a free lunch. Somewhere, someone is paying for it for some reason. So now we've got the first real advertising going into the music industry as soon as we start producing radio programs. And, of course, all this transitions onto television programs. And radio and television because they're comparably cheap to live performances for the consumer, start to kill off a lot of live performance venues. So you've had a very strong uh, vaudeville in the early 1900s. This would be all these different types of live performing shows, all of which would have live bands and mm -hmm. all these different type of acts, and they start to disappear. At first, I mean, we're talking about th this kind of stuff and these kind of live shows and music are happening in every single town pretty much. They're all over the everywhere. Place. I mean, everywhere you go, there's live music and live shows happening. On you know, today you have to drive to a, a major city, major area to see anything live for the most part. Now we find all that stuff on YouTube. But more or less, the music industry was transformed again after recorded sound by the radio, and by now the involvement with advertisers and the availability of free musical content to the consumer who has the equipment to access it. Yeah, which is not very much equipment. Now the average person can access yeah. some of the best of music for virtually no cost. Yeah, on the spot, in their home. It's true. And at this time you have yeah. jazz that's happening, you have the pop music, the big band music, all of these things starting to happen into the 30s and 40s. You also have classical music that is now available through affordable recordings and through the radio to the average listener, mm -hmm. again, for the first time in the history of humanity. Yeah. That's pretty cool. So even though there's less call for these live musicians because these different shows are dissolving and these different things are happening, music is actually finding a wider audience than it's ever found before. Yeah. So you've kind of got a couple of neat things happening there. Here's one more. I want to do, well, two more. Two more uh, inventions that are kind of connected <clears throat> that have done possibly the biggest, probably nothing's done as big a change as just having recorded sound, but... These next two have done some significant things in recent history. The first one I want to talk is about MIDI. MIDI and electronic music in general. So electronic music starts emerging in the 1970s, and you've got synthesizer keyboards that are producing sounds we've never had, uh, which is pretty cool. We're trying to figure out a better way to incorporate these different types of synthesizers and instruments into what's going on, and we have computers emerging as something that people can actually use in the early 1980s. So as computers are becoming accessible to people, you can now fit them in one room, for example. Yeah. You've also got this whole musical, uh, electronic music instrument revolution happening, and we needed some way to get those electronic instruments to communicate with our computers. And so MIDI, the musical instrument... What am I trying to say? Hold on. Digital interface. Yes, thank you. Musical instrument digital interface. That's what MIDI stands for. Normally I can say that without my brain falling out of my ear, but not always. <laughs> okay, uh, that was the solution. That's how we started connecting things together. And we're looking at the actual protocols for MIDI being invented in 1981 by Dave Smith and Chet Wood. Uh, at least according to the internets that I was looking at. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So we've got this thing now where these can start communicating with computers and we have this rise in computer music in the 80s. And back then, most of us would not be very happy with the sounds that we're getting from our computers when we make electronic music that completely bypasses 
the live musician. If you want to get make a sound that makes like a clarinet in the 1980s, you will not be happy. But this whole thing starts to happen and combines with a lot of things in the 1980s. First of all, you get it showing up in 1980s rock. You also get electronic music showing up in the first of the video games. Mm -hmm. So now we've got a whole new type of composer that's recording for someone who's going to be sitting in front of a screen for hours playing a video game that's now recording music for that. And you've got the early adventure game movement in the late 80s and early 90s. And this is where all the electronic music is happening and stewing. And we don't have much hard drive space. Things are on diskettes. So the samples, a sample being a recording of a live musician that we're basing the sounds we're producing electronically on, the samples have to be very small. And so the results that we're getting, they don't sound really appealing to the ear as they do when you have live musicians. However, we're getting better all the time. And so now in 2013, you can produce electronic music that unless you tell people, they don't realize that you don't have live musicians there. Yeah, in fact, you know, a lot of movie... Don't don't name any specific ones. Yes, there's there's a lot of movies, and I remember one that we saw together. That's right. Um, that at the end credits, we were looking to see who the musicians were, and it was there was like a live cello player, a live woodwind player, and then the entire rest of it was sampling. Right, the rest of it, and we thought there was a whole orchestra. Yeah, I mean, it's very very convincing. Uh, it's amazing how good it sounds these days. And that that was several years ago. A lot of these things are accessible to the average consumer now. The files that you can get. Uh, from Make Music, all their different types of samples that you can use with Finale and that you can use with Cubase, etc., are really nice. Mm -hmm. Disturbingly so. Uh, even I was shocked a few years ago by how good the saxophone sound on Band in a Box was. Disturbingly so. They're putting us all out of the job, Yeah. in a sense. So now all of a sudden, where musicians have been used for all the recording music, they're getting replaced by electronics. Yeah, just like live musicians are getting replaced... 50, 60, 70 years earlier by electronic stuff. Now start, it's it's happening again. And we're losing the recording artists too. Yeah. Now, it, again, it's not entirely. Just like there's still live musicians performing and making a living, all of a sudden there's alternatives to doing that. Mm -hmm. Luckily, nothing can replace live music. Yeah, and I was, I was going to mention an invention that was uh, created by Pat Metheny called the uh, Orchestrion, and it, it uses all MIDI controllers. And... What he does is he can play guitar, and he has an entire room, a large room full of instruments. You got keyboard instruments, and you got mallet uh, instruments like marimbas and xylophones, mm -hmm. and you got drum sets, um, and all sorts of stuff around him that he can actually control through his playing and foot pedals that he has. And his whole idea behind the experience was that he could have live musicians around him who are thinking the exact same thing that he is. That's scary. And, you know, it's it's a fairly recent thing. He's had it a couple years now. It's bound to be a video. Oh, yeah, there's there's videos of him talking about it and recording with it and stuff like that. And it's a really fascinating project that he's got going. And even just how to build the MIDI controller for it and stuff was, was a pretty interesting puzzle that him and uh, Guitar Maker had to work through. You want to introduce this one, Gannon? It's something that we all know that Al Gore invented. Right. Um Known as the internet. The internet. The ability to communicate on just another level instantly. We can we can communicate nowadays. We can communicate anything to anybody in any part of the world in less than a second. Unless you happen to live where I live, and your high speed internet is like medium speed internet, <laughs> and uploading a video still takes thirty or forty minutes. But at least you can upload videos. Yeah, you should not be able to do that. 
and that's that's really huge. And so specifically YouTube, supposedly YouTube is where more music is listened to on the internet by far than any other service. Mm-hmm. So when people want to hear about it, that's where they go. And all of a sudden, you have the ability to market directly to the 10 people that care about what you're doing. So like our podcast can go directly to the people that want to hear it and we can afford to produce it. Which pretty much takes nothing but time. And so the same thing happens with music. And sometimes those people make it pretty big. Justin Bieber. I heard that. Yeah. Right, Justin Bieber. He's one of those that the young ones are into. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) A Bieber fella. That's right. Well, you know, there's there's a lot of musicians that are being discovered that way. You know, Andy McKee, I don't know if you've ever seen his guitar stuff. He has some of the most watched YouTube videos in history of YouTube. It's it's the and, new it's the new radio it's the new television and yeah. you don't have to go through anybody to get there Mm-mm. and you becoming famous depends on people seeing it and sharing it with their friends well and what's happening now and this is what the internet's going to is that radio and television are going away mm-hmm. it's totally. all going to be via internet that's that's what's happening I think everybody knows that's what's happening and you've got networks now that are completely online that are producing amazing content that when people discover are shocked. So an example of that would be Felicia Day with Geek and Sundry, where she produces television series completely online. Or The Nerdist, uh, Chris oh, yeah. Hardwick's website. He does a podcast, which is amazing, so go listen to it now. You can even turn us off to go listen to it. <laughs> I wouldn't Just mind. come back next week. I love his know. podcast. Uh, they're, they're excellent, really good. He interviews all these famous people. He has the Nerdist, Nerdist.com, which has all sorts of stuff on it. it it's really fascinating. We're finally hitting a point where... The consumer can actually control um, the supplier in that sense. Like we, we can, we're hitting a, a breaking point, a tipping point where we can demand how we want our content given to us. And if it doesn't go that way, then we just don't have to do it. And so it's, it's really changed everything once again. And that's what's happening in the future. In the history of music and the life of the musician, there has been more transition in the last 150 years than the rest of all of space and time. Oh, exactly. And, and I guess it just goes with technology in general. I mean... It's true. Just the way that we communicate and the way that we function in this world has been changing so much in the last 150 years, more than ever in the history of the world before this. Everything about the way technology has changed has been to get music to more people. It's been about making music a part of more people's lives. And even though it sometimes feels like the live musician is being excluded more and more, I even see places where, and I see people who realize that there's still a huge benefit in having the live musicians right there performing, or that making music yourself is an exciting prospect. And I uh, I, I still see these things happening. Mm-hmm. I still see people go to concerts of their favorite musicians, and they think that that's a way better experience than listening to them on YouTube. But listening to them on YouTube gets them excited about going and seeing them live. Mm-hmm. All these things, when used appropriately, should be just driving forces behind making music even more of a power in the lives of people. Yeah, I think we as live musicians are going to definitely have to start changing the ways that we're doing things. You know, we're, we're still kind of in an old school system of, of doing gigs and um, getting music out there and stuff like that that... We're, we're definitely going to have to adapt to the situation. Well, we have to learn to be entertaining. We have to learn to be accessible. Mm-hmm. And we have to make our own opportunities as much as we can. We can't just depend on someone who's having a wedding to hire you instead of a DJ. You have to prove to them why having live music is special. And that's okay. I think that's a great idea. Let's do it. Yeah. 
Uh, Hopefully this has been encouraging and kind of fun. I I hope that you've enjoyed this discussion. Uh, We've got some neat things coming up. Here's a few of our guests that we're going to have in the future. Um, We've talked to a marching band arranger named Luke McMillan, Mm -hmm. and he's going to be on an upcoming podcast talking to us both about uh, arranging for small schools and the considerations that go into that, as well as talking about some of the copyright concerns with having a marching show and having it arranged for you, which was pretty interesting. Yeah. We also have oddquartet.com. Joshua Wells is going to do an interview with us, and I could not actually be any more excited about this. I love yeah. that comic. If you're not reading it twice a week or three times when you want to read one of the comics twice, <laughs> uh, then you need to. It's oddquartet.com. It's a wonderful webcomic all about music and music education and musicians. Yeah, definitely go to the website. Really excited about that. There's a couple others that I'm uh, getting ready to do and lots more discussion to have. And The website's constantly expanding. And I've been looking at the stats for our podcast, and I assume it's some type of weird rerouting. But it looks like we have five or six listeners in Saudi Arabia. <laughs> really? So that's, that's, that's what it said the last time I looked at it. So for you five or six people in Saudi Arabia, thank you for listening. Yes. Um, although I'm sure that it's actually some type of glitch and they're in Oklahoma. But uh, but if you're in Oklahoma, thank you for listening as well. Yeah, that's cool too. I, it's not Saudi Arabia or anything. It's still cool. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you guys so much for listening. And uh, we hope that you have a good week and that you practice a whole lot. Always practice. Practice. Yes. All right. Thanks, guys. You're supposed to say freemusiced.org in an annoying voice. Oh, yeah. Freemusiced.org. Okay, thank you. Goodbye.